far as the theme of the theme that goes the backbone all the way through, how would you classify Genesis 1 through 11 then? Like an introduction, getting it all set up, what the whole thing was about, and then God made an arrangement with what man? With Abraham. He made an arrangement with Abraham for some reason or other. We don't know why. It wasn't because Abraham was such a uh, wonderful character. Abraham was a liar, really. Well, he was a coward, in a sense. He was a coward. Now, that sounds awful to call Abraham a coward. Why, do I call, why would we call him a coward? Because he lied. I mean, not only once. He, made, he lied twice to protect himself at the expense of his wife. Good grief. And told the same lie. So, anyway, some reason or other, it wasn't what Abraham did that was so important. It's what God did for Abraham. That's what's so important. And that's what carries down through, through the ages. Uh, can you see these verses here? This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation, bless you, make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And that was the first time it was mentioned. In Genesis 22, 16, it's mentioned again. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this, this offering of your son Isaac, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of the enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you've obeyed me. And then, uh, chapter 18, then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him. Those three times, the first time he mentioned it to Abraham, and called him out to look at the stars of the sky and said, I'm going to, if you can count them, you, you can count your descendants. And the second time was just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and he was on his way to destroy it and he felt, uh, the Lord felt bad. If you let me, he talks to himself in, in uh, Genesis 18. He talks to himself and he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Here he's talking with himself. It's odd. It's a, and he says, I'm not, I can't hide this from my friend. And so he told him. And then in chapter 22, when, it test, when the test came, go up and offer your son. And I think that the test was simply this. That little boy being born to a 100-year-old man, that little boy was coming in between God and Abraham. And he began to think more of the little boy than he was thinking about uh, the Lord. Now, that's my speculation, but I can't help but believe this was not just an arbitrary test to see if Abraham would obey him. I think there was a problem involved. I think Abraham had to make a choice. He had to make a decision. Uh, am I going to put God first or am I going to put this little boy first? And he told him to go up on the Mount uh, Moriah and offer him. Uh, the remainder of the Jewish writings chronicle this theme. This was God's intended purpose for the Jewish nation that they recognize what their purpose for being chosen was.
what their purpose was. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you're my servant. I've chosen you, and you have not, and I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And you begin to pick up again. All nations of the earth should be blessed through you. And I'm making you now, he said, a light for the Gentiles. You're my servant. I have chosen you. I've given you this task. This is your job. And then Isaiah 69, uh, 49 and 6 says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. To me, this whole idea of this unified theme all the way through the scriptures, to me it just blows my mind. It's one of the most profound proofs of the inspiration of the entire Bible that I know of. Now, fulfilled prophecy is another one. But this, this uninterrupted, continuous chain, it has to be one of the most powerful proofs of the inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, this was God's intended purpose for them, that they be a light to the Gentiles. Now, can you begin to get an idea? This is not, this is not one of those minor, it's not one of those minor things. This was a major, a major emphasis. And in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18, he begins to bear down on them. He says, you're not listening. You're not hearing me. What is your problem? Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one committed to me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits and are hidden away in prisons. They've become plunder with no one to rescue them. They've been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this and pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over? And he talks about how that they had absolutely, they had, they'd failed. They'd failed the test. And he in that previous question, he said, Am I asking too much of you to be my servant and to bring back the ones of my own people, the Jewish people who were lost? And then he says, I'm making you a light to the Gentiles. He said, Is that too much to ask of you? So you find not only what he's saying, this is your job, but he said, You're also, you're not taking care of your job. Yes? The same chapter, the servant's referring to Jesus. In, in Isaiah 42? Yeah, it talks about uh, a bruised reed he will not break. Oh, okay. All right, that's a good question. We won't have time to go into it, but that, that's a good question. You see, the, the Jewish people, they were confused about well, who was the servant. They, and they considered it, even in Isaiah 53, they, uh, 
They don't know what to do with Isaiah 53, but they consider the suffering servant as Israel. And these prophecies, they, they kind of intermingle because at one time he's talking about them as the servant, and then he talks about the ideal servant. So we're right in the middle of a, of a quandary that the Jewish people find themselves in, and yet they, ha they, can't, they, can't, uh, they can't solve the problem. It's, it's, there's enough ambiguity in there that uh, they can't quite figure it out. Uh, and yet you, po you pointed out part of the time he's talking to the Jewish people as his servant, and yet in the middle of all that he talks about this coming one who is the ideal servant. Yeah, good, Connie. I hadn't uh, planned on mentioning that and hadn't thought about that in that particular chapter. That's interesting. You picked up on it. Okay, but now the question is, and let me just say this, other than these references here and then other references that I've put on the board, there are said to be over 300 other references in the Jewish writings that God is going to bless the Gentile people of the earth, the non-Jews. There's a seeming, not a contradiction, but there's a, something here that's hard to explain. How can you explain the Jewish scriptures with their prejudice against the Gentile people? How can you explain that in their writings they gave their lives to preserve those writings that contain over 300 references to the Gentile, non-Jewish people being blessed by God and being included in God's plan. There again, just like this backbone, you know, the backbone of the Bible is a powerful uh, verification, or to me at least, it's powerful that you can think of over 1,600 years that this book was written and you've got this continuity, this this thread that all says the same thing. This is the big deal. And then you've also got in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, you've got over 300 references that God's going to bless the non-Jewish people. They hated the non-Jew. So you've got all these uh, uh, strange happenings taking place. One that was God's, it was just absolutely His purpose for the Jewish nation to bless the nations of the earth. And then you've got this other that kind of uh, has to do with people themselves. Why? How do you explain that they kept these writings and all and made sure that they, were, they didn't escape, okay, or didn't get lost? Now, the question for today's study is this. Do we find the same commitment by this Jewish God? And does that bother you that I call Yahweh a Jewish God? I don't mean to say it irreverently. I'm saying it on purpose. Does it bother you? And I don't want to, don't want to bother you to, to call him a Jewish God. But the fact of the matter is that that's what he was known as through all the centuries. He was known as the God of the Jews. And they were the ones who on occasions, the prophets especially, says, Who is like Jehovah, our God, who made the heavens and the earth and all of them? Who is like him? So what will you compare him? All the other nations have their idols that they, they make out of gold or, or silver or, or rocks or wood. But he said, Israel has, Jacob has this God who made, who made the heavens and the earth. He made all. So there was a very definite distinction. He was, in a sense, a Jewish God. Now, is this Jewish God as interested, if, when you get on through the Jewish scriptures, and then you come into what we would call the Christian writings, is there continuity there or not? Do you find this same emphasis? Or do you find all of a sudden this whole idea just kind of flopped? And it's never mentioned again. Well, what would you do if you got into the, into the second volume 
And after all this that we're saying is the emphasis, if you found in the new, in the new second volume, you looked and looked and looked and you couldn't find any reference to it whatsoever. What would be your, what response would you give? It wouldn't connect. It would produce in us confusion. And I think, frankly, that the whole idea of Christianity being what it is and the way it's covering the earth, uh, I think that never would have happened because I suspect that it never would have been true to begin with. I suspect that it would have been a local, parochial, tribal uh, reference that kind of got on and took hold of in the Old Testament, but just never did really carry out. So, but if it is true that this continuity, if it's true that it is a continuity that stretches all the way from Genesis 12 through Revelation, and next Sunday we'll pick up on that that takes place after Jesus. Today we're looking at Jesus as the embodiment of this promise to Abraham. It finds its fulfillment in him specifically. If so, we find ourselves with the key to God's unchangeable purpose firmly in our hands. There it is. And it's been, it's been ratified in the Old Testament. It's been ratified in the New Covenant, the New Scriptures. And the entirety is one vast chain with every link in place, and when you get on down through time, you'd think, well, after 400 years of the intertestamental period, 400, that's twice as long as America's been a nation. 400 years when there was no revelation at all. Then all of a sudden, bang, out of the blue comes what? Look over, if you will, and take your Bibles and follow me. Turn to Matthew, the, the first chapter. First chapter, right out of the whole... Right out of the silence of the Old Testament, something happened. Now, you'll have to realize that Matthew is only recording what happened. Now, that's not all that important, and yet it is, too, if you're going to get a true perspective. Matthew is only recording. Do you know when Matthew was written? No, we really don't. But Matthew, it was not as though after 400 years of silence, Matthew sat down and started writing a story. That's not the way it is. Matthew, maybe 50 years after these events, sat down and wrote these and recorded these events. Something happened, and Matthew now is recording what happened. Now, does that make any difference to you? Do you see it? Is, you say, well, why in the world do you mention that? I mention it because so many times we read this as though it just really, it's a kind of a fable, a mother goose ride. I'm not accusing you of that, but I'm just saying there's a tendency for us to not really and truly take seriously what is written here. I mean seriously in the sense that it's anchored in time. It's rooted in history. We'll come nearer doing it if we started off with Luke, because Luke dates it from the Caesars. He dates it from the rulers of Palestine. He dates it from certain census takers. And you can go back in Roman history, and you can go back and you say, well, that's the one he's talking about. There it is. It's, it's there in plenty. He's recorded it, or Josephus recorded it. Okay. Now, if you'll look, Matthew traces the very first chapter right out of the box, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of whom? The son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. That's in the first verse. That's in the first verse of this new set of writings. Hey, have you ever thought, have you ever wondered what your response to all this would have been had the, the most important person, had the number, earth's number one man, 
had he been born a Chinese? Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about it? What if Jesus, what if Jesus had been a Chinese? Good night. What would, well that wouldn't make sense. And yet here we would be confronted with this man that has done, has made this magnificent contribution, unequaled in all of the history of the world. And he was supposed to have been born to Abraham and he comes to find out he's born over there in China. He has nothing, no contact, no connection with Abraham at all. Well, that would be, that would be awful. Well, anyway, don't, that's just, uh, let's look again. Look at the trail of events. We're going to have to fly. Look over in Luke. Turn over to Luke 1, 54 and 55. And I'm going to just make a few comments on this because we won't. This promise to Abraham was still alive. How well they understood it, I don't know. Mary, in her uh, song that she sang in verses 54 and 55 of Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, to Abraham and his descendants forever, as he, has sa as he said to our fathers. Now, Mary just simply mentions Abraham. She doesn't say anything more about it. But it was not unusual for all of the Jews, then and now, to trace their lineage back to Abraham. So that's not all that uh, startling. But turn on over a bit more. Look over in chapter, same chapter, verses 72 through 74. This is Zechariah. This is Jesus' uncle. Jesus' uncle, at the birth of his own son, John, the baptizer, praises God. And in verse, 17, uh, verse 72, he praises him that in verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Oh, there's that covenant he's referring to. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. You see, and that's all he mentions. But he mentions the covenant, he mentions what God swore to Abraham, and he mentions that it would be to rescue us from our enemies. Now, that's a, an uh, indirect reference to where he says, he will curse those who curse you. Okay, turn on over though to uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 30 and 31 and 32. Simeon. Who was Simeon? Who was Simeon? He was, he was in the temple when they brought Jesus in to dedicate him. He was an old man to whom the Lord had made a promise. You're not going to die until you see the, my Christ. And then he says, so, verse 30, 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon had picked up on it. Simeon specifically verbalizes this promise to Abraham was that, he, that the children of Israel would be a light to the people, to all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So you, feel, you find all of these in, in uh, the genealogy in Matthew 1, flipping back there, you don't need to, but you can if you will, flipping back to Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus contains how many references to women? Now this was a male-dominated record, obviously. Luke doesn't mention it at all. Other than, in addition to Mary, how many? Three. No, in addition to Mary, there were four. She was the fifth. Now, only three are named, but the other one is referred to as the wife of somebody. Who were these four women and what do they have in common? They were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Who were they? Ruth, 
Ruth? Rahab, Ruth, Rahab. Uriah's wife. Uh-oh, who was that? She was Hittite and she was Bathsheba. At least she was married to a Hittite. Now, and it's... We just... Uh, since they were... Well, that didn't keep them from marrying foreign wives. But this, uh, but anyway, she married a Hittite. And it's considered more than likely she was a Hittite herself. And then you have the other one... Uh, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. You got Tamar, Rahab, uh, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All four of them were, were Gentiles. They're the only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus was part Gentile. He was not a full-blooded Jew. Frankly, there are no full-blooded Jews. I don't know when it began to creep in, but... For hundreds and thousands of years, there has never been really, there have never been any full-blooded Jews. They reckon, a, they reckon a Jew today by a, whose birth, the mother or the father? By the mother's bloodline. They reckon a Jew, if your mother was a Jew, you are a Jew. If your father was a Jew, it doesn't really follow. Not in terms of Jewish law today. Well, now, when John the Baptist, look over at uh, Luke, the third chapter, verses 4 through 6. Luke 3, 4 through 6. John began preaching. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. John picked up on this same theme, the backbone of the Bible, God's purpose, according to John, according to every reference in the Old Testament, God's purpose for the Jewish people was that they were to be the means by which the entire world would come to know God. You see, an entire, an entire race had, gone, had, had jumped the tracks. An entire race had gone foul, had gone haywire. And here was a task that confronted the Lord God. How am I going to get myself? How am I going to get them to know me? And he could have chosen a lot of different ways, but he chose to do it through a man, Abraham. And there's a top side, a top line and a bottom line. You remember I was talking about the top line and bottom line? What was the top line in the promise to Abraham? The top line was that he would be great, that God was going to bless him, that that Abraham was going to become like the stars of the sky. What was the bottom line? Larry, what was that, we would be blessed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That was the bottom line. And we see that being followed through in the Old Testament. Both the top line, God blessed them, and he blessed them against their, you know, they didn't want God. When you get right down to it, the Jewish people did not want Jehovah. They only wanted him when they were in trouble. Oh, does that ring a bell with any of us? Then don't ride their case, because that's sometimes the only time we want him, is when we're in trouble. So when you read back and find yourself getting dissatisfied and all disgruntled with the Jewish people, saying, why don't you get your act together? The only time you ever want him is when you're in trouble, and you stop right flat in the middle of the air, and you see three fingers pointing back at yourself, because that's the way we are most of the time, too until you move past that 
and become a willing servant of his. And then when you become that willing servant, what do you do? I'm convinced that when you become that willing servant, you're going to start fulfilling this backbone of the Bible. You're going to become one of those charged electrons that in turn charges others. And until you become a charged electron, until you become a magnetic particle that then attracts other people, you've really not understood the bottom line. You may have been attracted to Christ, but until you become charged electronic or electrically to where you then you pull other people and you start drawing in other people, then you've really, you know, better off than the Jews of Jesus' day who didn't do their job either, or the Jews back a thousand years before Jesus who didn't do their job. Paul refers to them in the second chapter of Romans when he said the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. You see, not only had they become a non-positive charged particle, they had become a negative particle. They were repelling people. And he says they're, people are blaspheming God because of the way you Jews are living. Well, okay. Jesus then begins his message or his ministry among he begins his ministry where? Among, among Jews or among Gentiles? Among Jews, but they were Jews that were living where? And this, I never did think about that until this week. And I never did get it together. They were Jews who were living in Gentile-dominated territories. In fact, this is where in the, in the book of Isaiah it prophesied that he was going to do his ministry among the people who sat in darkness and they saw a great light. And, uh, and uh, in, the, in the regions around the, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee essentially, it was far away from Jerusalem. It wasn't right in the very heart. It was not right in the real Bible belt. Galilee itself was more... Uh, well, it was just kind of removed from the Jewish fanaticism of Jerusalem. But then the little town that sits on the northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Capernaum, the city of Nahum, Capernaum was a, had been greatly, uh, not dominated necessarily, but greatly influenced, and much of its population was Gentile. And it was known really as a Gentile stronghold. Now, Jesus began, and we'll make mention of that more in the second hour, uh, because in these two cl the class this morning and in the sermon this morning, this, these two themes or these two classes merge. This subject of the backbone of the Bible and then why they rejected Jesus for some providential reason. I'm thankful. I didn't plan it that way. They merge, and we'll begin to see what some of the implications of this are. But Jesus began his ministry among those Jewish people, but in a Gentile territory. Look at, somebody read Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. That's where it refers to this. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And then I've, gone, I've got to spend the rest of the time looking at this. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, what do you have? He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. All right. He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the sea along the Jordan. That's a reference to Capernaum and Bethsaida and those cities along that uh, coast there. And then Matthew in the fourth chapter records that among the multitudes that followed him, if you'll notice Matthew 4.12, Matthew 4.12 says great multitudes followed Jesus from Galilee and from the Decapolis. What was the Decapolis? It was that whole region northeast of 
Palestine, well, the east of Palestine and mainly northeast of Palestine. What, and it was a, it were, they were ten Gentile cities, ten Jew, or Greek, ten Greek-dominated cities. Now, I think, and I have no proof of this, that may be proof, but I don't have it. I think that what he did was influence or he attracted the people who were Jews living in those areas. And we'll come to that. At, I won't take time now, but don't let me forget to mention it at the next hour. Now, there's a statement. After all this lead-up, all this lead-up, turn to John, the 8th chapter. All this lead-in as far as the influence that Abraham had on these Jewish people. How did it affect Jesus? Turn to John 8 and look at verse 56. At this time... The Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you say that if a man keeps your word, he'll never taste of death? Are you greater than Abraham, our father? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? See, they're getting riled. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. Ooh, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, what does that mean? When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Shortly after this, it wasn't maybe six months after this conversation here, they led Jesus of Nazareth outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified him. They executed him. Now I want to show you a connection. Can you turn those lights down just a bit more, perhaps, and we can see it even better? All right, that's good. Do you see this spot right here, the one with the three crosses? Right here. Do you see this whole area here? What mountain is that on? It's on Mount Moriah. Well, what happened on Mount Moriah that so, has anything to do with this at all? Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. Would you believe it? This whole temple area here, this is Mount Moriah. Well, there, there on that, there's a precipice there, a skull-shaped trajectory on Mount Moriah where they executed Jesus of Nazareth. Is it just coincidental that that very man to whom the Jewish people traced their lineage, the very man through whom God said the whole earth would be blessed, is it just coincidental that he offered his one and only son there and was rescued from the execution of him because there was a lamb or a ram found hung in the thickets by its horns, and that 1,900 years later, one of his descendants would stand up before a hostile mob and, said to, and say to them, Your father Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced to see it. He saw it and he was glad. Is it just coincidental or could that be the event could that be the occasion where Abraham caught a prophetic glimpse of what God was going to do for the whole earth? And Jesus knew that he had gotten that insight into it 
slight though it may have been, but when he saw this lamb substituted for his own son, maybe that's where Abraham got a glimpse of what God was going to do for the whole earth at this very spot where he was offering his son. Isn't that coincidental that both of them took place on Mount Moriah? And we're looking at the map of it right now. And you can go over there today if you want to and, and find the spot, and there it is. You can go stand on Mount Moriah. I'll tell you what. We're a hold of something that's as real as you, you never will touch reality. If this isn't real, there ain't no such thing as reality. But it's hard to grasp. I'm not confessing... I'm not confessing doubt. I'm not confessing that I doubt. I'm confessing an incapacity to grasp the reality of it all. I am, I'm confessing, I think, what is natural for human beings. I'm finding myself in the middle of something, and I find it very difficult to grasp the implications and do it at a level that is more than just intellectual and theoretical. I want to go on record today saying that you and I either are or we are not a part of the backbone of the Bible. If you're not a part of it, it's not because the backbone isn't there. If it is not your purpose to be going out and bringing people to know God, it's not because God's purpose for you has not been expressed. If we're not thinking in terms of every time we see someone, I wonder if he knows God. How can I get that person to know God? If that is our purpose, then you can count on it. You are one of those charged, you're one of those charged particles. If you are concerned and if, you're, if, you, if you live and breathe to serve other people, then you're one of those charged particles that dates all the way back to Abraham and you're the bottom line of what God had planned and the entire message of the Bible is being realized and you're a part of it. Man, that is so exciting. It is so exciting. And I just thank God. Every day I thank Him. Thank you for letting me be a part of your plan. I'm going home. I, make it your point. Make it your aim. Go home. Be ready to go home. But listen, he's not going to be any more kind to you and me who fail in our task as his servants to get the whole world to know the gospel of Christ, the good news. You think he's going to excuse you or me? He didn't excuse them. He said, who is dumb but my servant? Who is deaf? You're always hearing, but you're never doing anything. That sounds like a lesson that James gave us last Wednesday night. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. When Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to every creature, to all nations, that's, he was extending the backbone and he was saying, look, this isn't just an afterthought. This dates all the way back to Abraham. This is God's purpose. It's his unchanging purpose. And you and I have an opportunity to be a part of it.